Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey friends, uh, welcome to the Tennis and Bagels podcast, a podcast about essentially anything tennis from recreational to pro, and my name is Andre. And uh, I'm the co-host, Funch, and today we have a returning guest, uh, legend and Hall of Famer, uh, author of two renowned books, uh, The Greatest Tennis Matches of All Time, and a recent book, uh, Pete Sampras' Greatness Revisited. We welcome uh, Steve Flink. Steve, how are you today? Good, Vonch. It's great, nice to be back with you guys. I'm looking forward to talking to you about the book. Excellent. So, so um, I wanted to get a little bit just for our listeners who are, um, you know, maybe looking to to read the book and get some, and learn a little bit more about 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 Sampras and kind of where he stands today in tennis history. Um, I'm curious, you know, what was the inspiration for writing this book? And given that you know he's he's been a little bit overshadowed now with the emergence of the big three, which came really quickly after his uh, retirement. So um, if you want to go into a little bit more about how the idea came up and the process that went along with it. Yeah, you got to some of it, some of the essence of it with the comments you just made is that, you know, when he left the game, many thought that uh, when the subject of the greatest player of all time, when you certainly when you got to the 60s and beyond, that it really was essentially a contest between Rod Laver and Pete Sampras, and many thought that Pete was the greatest of all time, despite despite not winning a French Open, and Rod obviously won two Grand Slams and two French, but he was he was very much in the forefront of that conversation, and many people believed that he was indeed the best. And then, as you said, along came this, this prodigious trio of Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal, Novak Djokovic, collecting majors at record-breaking pace. You know, Federer, obviously the first to jump out in front and, and has been trying to protect his lead ever since. And now he's obviously he's got 20 majors and you got Rafa right behind him at 19 as we head to the French and Novak at 17. Who would have imagined that they would have surpassed Pete's 14? But I, I was inspired to write the book because I felt that he, he was a bit taken for granted. Uh, people expected him to win in his era. He did win. He had six years in a row, a record six years in a row at number one. That's a record that uh, Novak Novak may manage to come, to secure a sixth year-end uh, ranking this year. But right. it, will, it will not have been in succession the way Sampras did. But that mm-hmm. was really sort of underlining his supremacy during his prime the fact that he did that. So there were a lot of factors. I just admired immensely how he went about his business. The fact that he was a craftsman, not a showman. uh, While I thought it was a bit the opposite with Agassi at times. And uh, it was a great generation and they made each other better. Sampras and Agassi did as along with Courier and Chang, a lot of the others. But I just felt inspired to do it because I thought he was a, 
he was an underappreciated American sporting hero. That's how I looked at it. Yeah, and you summed it up beautifully there when you said uh, he I, just the way he comported himself uh, on and off the court, and the the he never was arrogant, but he always had an inner self belief, I think, and uh, inner conviction in himself that he was uh, on his best day going to bring the best that he had, and it was going to be unstoppable at times. That's exactly right, and I I think that you 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 summed it up nicely there and that that was him he didn't step over the line uh from confidence into arrogance the way so many uh sports figures or celebrities do it, it's a, almost unavoidable at times he he didn't do that he uh he had a sense of self-restraint and dignity and grace about him and didn't want to embarrass himself or his family as he told me in the book and there were a lot of reasons why he behaved the way he did but that was a very important part of him was his sportsmanship, the way he honored his trade, the way he honored the game. So all of these, the, all of these were reasons why I wanted to do a book that was essentially a tribute to him and the sterling career that he celebrated. I wanted to ask a question, like a little bit more in, in, in terms of the process of, of, of writing a, a tennis book, in a sense. And uh, it's it's obviously an interesting case with Pete because as you said it like uh, it's is not most of a showman from whom which kind of uh, it can give you like a lot of creative freedom to uh perturb their, their matches and whatnot but like when and it comes to a case like Pete Sampras is it's so business focused is a man with a mission and that he does his tennis and then leaves the court and that's it but like how can you bring uh, a player like Pete Sampras to life in a way that becomes um, entertaining, even even in a book, because he's not a guy that, had that like puts his hands up in the air, and just like starts screaming and like like people like Zverev would do, like for example. How how would you make that creative tennis writing come to life? I would say. Well, I think that there's there's there were several ways I tried to go about it. One was to, that he he and I I've always had a very good rapport with him as a reporter, and I felt like I could get him to say things that weren't going to be outlandish or outrageous or out of character, but that were a little more reflective than may, perhaps some others could get from him. But in turn, one of the crucial things was to go to the likes of Courier and Chang and Edberg and Wielander and Lendl and McEnroe and Billie Jean King and Martina Navratilova, so many, but especially his male rivals in this sport to get them to uh, explain what it was like from 78 feet across the net, uh, what it was like to face him, wh what they thought of him, how, how much they revered him, and, and then sometimes to go back to him to get his reaction to what they had to say. And I thought that was one of the ways to really bring him out, to, to fill out that portrait of him and make people understand that he was a dynamic, mm -hmm. quite a fascinating individual in his own right even if he was low-key mm -hmm. and reserved. That didn't mean he wasn't really compelling. That's yeah. how I felt. Yeah. Sure, and I think uh, your coveted cast of characters that you included, from ranging all the way from Becker, Wielander, to Courier, and Chang. And, even Novak Djokovic you know, is in the mix, uh, right? Even, even Novak Djokovic. I was just curious as to you know, his main rival being Andre Agassi. You know, why, you know, there were definitely a lot of good quotes and assessments from him but mostly from his own book rather than, uh, you know, you yeah, know that, that he gave that, you. That was uh, not my doing. I went, I went to him as I did with, in all cases and requested the interviews and everybody was, was very uh, forthcoming and reasonable and willing to give me their time, which was nice. He refused to. 
because uh, it wasn't anything. It wasn't out of personal animosity toward Pete, but it's still, uh, it's still. I found it disappointing because I felt out of respect for the rival. They're not close friends, but they're also not enemies. They're they're very respectful rivals. So I thought I could get him to talk about those key matches and and the rivalry and what it meant to the game and what it meant to him. And unfortunately, I I, I was not able to succeed on that front. And he politely. Declined. There was no bitterness about it, and uh, he he knew that this book was authorized, and I thought he should have given me the time, not because it was me, but because it was Pete Sampras, whom he faced 34 times between right. 1999 and 2002. The Pete Sampras who he played in five major finals, you know, three times in the U.S. Open final. You'd think that he would be willing. However, maybe. I I'm not a, I'm not a I'm not a psychologist I'm not a psychiatrist maybe the the wounds are still too deep from those losses I honestly don't know that was unfortunate but I I think that the what made up for it was to get the likes of Brad Gilbert and and Darren Cahill as coaches and they they filled in some of the gaps they were both really quite good at talking about those matches Cahill about the last U.S. Open in 2002 and. And uh, and Gilbert talking about the 95 U.S. Open, the 99 Wimbledon. So they sort of stepped in for him. That was too bad, but I think it, 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 there was more than enough to balance it out from the likes of Courier and Chang and the rest that we just mentioned. Pat Rafter and Goran Ivanisevic as well. Todd Martin, who he played in the 94 Australian Open final. So they all were so good that in the end, yes, I would have liked to have had Andre, but uh, it, it just didn't mm. work out. For sure, I think um, also uh, the cast of one of the cast of characters that you got uh, happens to be a you know a big three member today, Novak Djokovic. Yes. and I think yeah. I thought his comments were incredibly insightful, and he was as articulate and thoughtful as ever. Uh, when just t- thinking about when uh, you asked him to reflect on what it was like watching Pete as a six-year-old growing up in Kofanik, yeah. Serbia, and you know I've been I'd been thinking about it for a while that uh, you know what did Djokovic really see in Sampras? Because I always thought that. His game was a little bit more similar to Andre, but then True. I and I started realizing that it must have been the the mental side of it and the the clutchness and the 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 ability to seize that moment when it came that I think really uh, made Djokovic feel like one day he could be in Sampras's shoes, holding up and winning Wimbledon five times. Well, I can only say that you read the book very very carefully and 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 perceptively because. That's exactly right. Uh, stylistically, much more resemblance to Andre Agassi. However, he admired the Sampras composure, the big, the propensity to play the big points better than anybody else. This, this, you know, grace under pressure. Even though his temperament was also not like Pete's, or is not to this day like Pete's, he still, it was still something that he could aspire to in a, in a, in a way and try, try to replicate, which he did. No, I thought he was excellent. I thought he was really good. We didn't spend that much. We we talked for about a half an hour, but he he gave me so much good material in that time, and and uh, I I really enjoyed that. I thought it was important, if I could, to get either Novak or Roger. But I think people have heard more from Roger. Mm, yeah. They know Novak. They know that Novak idolized Pete growing up, but I had a chance to get him to really be a bit more expansive about it than perhaps he's been anywhere else, and. Mm-hmm. That was that was nice to see, but you read it, you read mm-hmm. it very well. He, 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 what he was emulating was the character of the man, the, 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 you know, the, the ability to respond under pressure and play the big points and come through when it really counted. 
And that's what he wanted to become someday. And of course, that is really how, as he said himself, he believes that's how he's defined himself. And he made that comment about the 19 Wimbledon final against Roger, sort of epitomizing that. And I, I'd agree with him. And so there is a sort of a fascinating parallel there that you would not, that the typical fan might not expect. Yeah, there was a exactly. there was a, just like a, a quick one about um, one uh, little motive, motif that I find in, in Sampras is from the very beginning and, and the, when he won his first U.S. Open in 1990, I believe. Um, and That's uh, correct. so it, it's the his ability to understand that he's he has the upper hand in the match and and be very very much okay with it. It's it's like uh, and when he was uh, serving for the, uh, the matches and he was dominating, he was uh, in his interviews he was saying, um, "Well, I, I just I just knew that I was better at the moment than, for example, Ivan Landau or uh, Andre Agassi." And he's he's like, "And I knew he was not going to." Uh, Uh, cause me trouble in my serve and I knew my forehand will, could blow him off the court or I could just dominate whenever I wanted and I, I thought those um, those quotes are so so interesting from from uh, Pete Sampras perspective because they can read as arrogance in a sense but then you, you see even how he proceeds in the throughout the book he was saying like I had scars from a uh, Uh, not winning another Grand Slams for another two years and he was so tense in the Wimbledon final uh, against um, Edberg uh, and um It's how does how does do you think that that police, for example, I feel like um, how do you think that, uh, for example, a a player, I would say the new gen could uh, try to see that in, in that way? Because it's he makes it look so easy, but it, it really when you see, for example, the U.S. Open final, you see that it is 100% not the case. So, yeah. Well, I, listen, he. He, he did know how good he was. He did know how great he was. Uh, but And he did state it along the lines that you just referred to. However, in fairness, he did it in a little more understated way. You're, you're paraphrasing, which mm. is fine. But Pete was never one to go overboard in the way he described himself. He, it was just a quiet inner belief, but unshakable is the oh, word yeah. I always think of when it comes to him. And, and, and that's really what carried him throughout his career, across his whole career, was, was that. And, and even when, we'll talk about it later, but even when he went into a slump near the end, he came back strong at, the, at his last U.S. Open because he never really lost faith in himself. And he always thought he could bring it back and, get, and, and raise his game to the top level again. And that's just how he was. That was really sort of his uh, signature throughout mm -hmm. his career. Yeah, there's a couple of things actually I wanted to to touch on with, in relation to Pete and maybe bring it back to current day uh, pro players. And one is that uh, I noticed that, you know, in the beginning of the book, it talks about his kind of upbringing, his Greek descent. And then it, it trans the book transitions a lot more into his first coach, Pete Fisher, which uh, who was kind of the head coach. And then he and then he obviously had several other coaches for different aspects of his game, for his right. serve, for his ground strokes, for his volleys. And I'm You know, I, and that seems to have gone away now in, in, in the game today. Like, we, we have bigger entourages, but we don't see players, like, having multiple coaches. Yeah, so, you're right. But part of the reason was that that uh, was the unconventionality of it all, if I can make up a word. It, unconventional setup, because Pete Fisher was a, a, a pediatrician, and he was... He was Uh, fanatical about tennis, but there were certain mm -hmm. gaps in his knowledge. He really yeah. had pretty much had to go to those people. It's not that he knew nothing about tennis, but he wasn't, a, as you read in the book, yeah. I'm sure you noticed, 
not not known as a good player at all. Some of these. There was coaches, a quote from Tracy Austin that yeah, summed it up yeah. beautifully. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> said she said he was terrible, and and she said it very in a very jovial way. But <laughs> so I think that was very smart of Pete Fisher. Understood his own limitations. It's not that he didn't understand anything technically, and he did actually have quite a bit to do with Pete's serve. But he couldn't really shape the whole ca- the whole game. He needed to go to Robert Landsdorf and others to get the help, and that was really. Uh, extremely, uh, uh, extremely intelligent on his part. A lot of coaches wouldn't recognize that. And you're right; you don't normally get that kind of setup. But it was, it was, it was remarkable the way it all came together. That Sampras could hear the different voices on the different strokes, hear Fisher all the time, and just develop at his own rate, and and keep improving and keep believing and, and knowing where he was headed. It, w- it was, it was highly unusual to be sure. Mm. For sure, and then he also switched from a two. Yeah, I wanted I wanted to uh, say to because me and Rush were talking about that, and uh, I've been thinking ever since I, I read that line. I was I was really surprised um, to to see that Sampras had a two handed, and uh, it was a solid shot. It was not like it was a um, like a like a shot that he changed because he was going to be better with the backhand because he had a solid one. But for stylistic changes, in the sense that like for for his game plan, he he felt it was a better switch to the uh, to one handed that matched his game and his um, ambitions really a little bit better. Um, and I kept thinking in terms of um, whether he would have been able to win Roland Garros, but would that have affected maybe his ability to win as many Wimbledons as he, he did? Um, so what, did you, what would you be your, your opinion in general about like the, the, the two-handed backhand? Well, I think everybody in the book, I obviously got a range of opinions. I spoke to Robert Lansdorp about that, who was one of his great coaches in the same era. Lansdorp thought that he would have been able to, he felt he would have won all those Wimbledons in addition to winning the French if he'd stayed with the two-handers. So there was that school of thought. Chang leaned in that direction too, because he competed against him in those days. So he saw the two-hander and saw that the evolution to the one-hander. But I think Pete was the, himself was the most convincing saying, look, I was an athlete, as an athlete, you know, someone who was looking for the transition game, looking to win Wimbledon as an attacking player, it was always going to be more difficult. Wouldn't have been impossible. We saw Bjorn Borg win five in a row, 76 to 80, and he he was a confirmed baseliner who sort of made himself do some serve and volleying at Wimbledon, made himself change his game pretty pretty significantly to suit the surface. But it was a lot harder to do that. And Borg was never a great volleyer, for instance. So I, I think I came down on Sampras' side of that debate. I think in the end, and we'll never know, could he have won the, would he have won the French with a two-hander? We're never really going to know that. And if he had, maybe he ends up with three Wimbledons instead of seven. In the end, I think the results really sort of bolstered his argument to come away with seven Wimbledons, not to mention five U.S. Opens on the hard courts, couple more in Australia with a total of 14. Okay, never won the French, but he became the premier attacking player uh, probably of all time, but certainly of his era. So, But that was a fun part of the book to write, to get the different opinions from Chang, Lansdorp, and Sampras himself on what it was like to... And he admitted, he admitted that that there was some insecurity for a while, for maybe a year, when he was making the transition, wondering because people were questioning it, and maybe he questioned it a little bit himself, but not for too long. He, you know, he he adjusted and, and turned that one-hander into a valuable tool. And obviously, it enabled him to have a better transition game and to be able to approach the net more easily. And then 
I'm sure his back end volley would never have been nearly as, as great as it became. Sure, yeah. And that was a signature aspect of his uh, U.S. Open run in, in 1990. I guess now I kind of want to move, shift in the direction sure. of his right. uh, career from 1990 to 1995. Sure. And really, it started with that awesome run that he had in 1990 as a 12th seed, knocking off Thomas Muster, Lendl, McEnroe, um, Agassi. I guess it didn't come out of nowhere, that run, and he was obviously building towards that, and he had uh, he'd had a good 90 season up until that point. But what do you think really made the difference as he started getting to the quarters and semis when he really believed that he could get over the line? It's one of those things you can't... You can't- it's one of those things that can't be fully explained in the sense that, yes, you're right. Started off Mooster, who was a tough, industrious, you know, the Austrian seated six. Pete was seated 12th. Yeah. So he was a candidate, but he was obviously not one of the premier ones and not one that really many anybody was really talking about to win the tournament. So uh, Mooster was a critical win because he was, came two points away from going down two sets before winning in four. And then he got up two sets against Lendl and eventually won that in five. And that I think then, I still don't think he was thinking he was going to win the tournament at that stage, but he got out there against Mack and what was happening, much to his delight, was with round by round, he was raising his game. He was getting better and better, discovering things that he could do on a court that he, he didn't know were necessarily possible. It was it was sort of a joyride, and he, he had a great time doing it. And the Mackinac match was four sets, but he was never in real danger, and he won the first two, and finally culminated with that brilliant performance beating Andre Agassi 6-4, 6-3, 6-2, which was by far the best he had ever played up until that time, and maybe he wouldn't play that well for three years in in, in a lot of respects. So it was it was a phenomenal run, because Agassi, of course, had been in the French final earlier in the year, and he'd been in two U.S. Open semis in a row, and he was the heavy favorite. Of all those people, he was most favored to beat Pete. There seemed like a chance for him to upset Lendl. Lendl was slightly on the decline at that point after being in eight U.S. Open finals in a row, a record for the men. And then, you know, McEnroe was slightly past his prime, but I guess he was the guy that was supposed to beat him. And he just peaked. He absolutely hit the zone against Agassi. Every shot in the book and swung so freely. And yes, he served 13 aces and didn't lose his serve, but it was the virtuosity was that everything was there. It was sort of a, he almost took us into the future that day. He couldn't replicate it for a couple of years, but that day he played the kind of tennis that we started to see from him regularly uh, three years later. Yeah, and those couple, next couple of years, actually, that you that you talk about, I think, uh, you know, when he won the U.S. Open, he was the youngest ever to do it at 19. I, right. And I think it, it came so quickly, suddenly, the fame and the, the, the expectations that then, uh, you know, he had a couple of, Good years, but not really super productive in the majors. He did win a Masters title, and then yeah, yeah. he had obviously that. It, it it kind of reminded me a little bit of, of of a parallel with Djokovic in the sense when he won his first uh, Slam in two thousand eight, and then had two or three years from two thousand eight uh, Australia to two thousand eleven. Absolutely right. Quite similar. Quite similar. Growing into it, living up to it handling the pressure, dealing with the demands. Novak was a, was a bit older, but Pete was, uh, yeah, it was, it was hard for him because the expectations were greater and everybody was asking the questions. He wasn't always 100% physically healthy. And then 
it looked like he was going to, for sure, was going to win the 92 U.S. Open because he won the first F.M. Edberg and eventually lost that in four. And that, of course, is the match that changed yeah. his life. Yeah, he, he was so upset with that in the months that followed that that's really what led to all of the great years from 93 on was that he, he, he found it intolerable because he felt that a part of him gave in. It wasn't an outright surrender or any kind of tanking or anything like that. But in the fourth set after he'd served for the third set, and then eventually lost it in the tiebreak. He, he definitely sagged a bit, and Edberg ran away with the fourth. And that can happen in the end of a long fortnight, and an emotional one. And he'd had some tough matches along the way. Uh, but it, 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 it maybe, I think, was the best thing that ever happened to him. Because I think it, it made him so, more, so much more conscious and aware of what he wanted out of the game, more than he'd ever known before. And it took that kind of a painful... Uh, jarring defeat to to make him fully understand yeah. it, and from that point on, he moved. He just moved straight into yeah, his prime. I think oh, you, you really mentioned a, a keyword that I found, like in between uh, the nineteen ninety U.S. Open and then his 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 prime in uh, ninety three when he started like winning majors uh, is is awareness. And um, you you use the word uh, unconscious to describe his greatness in the in the nineteen ninety Open that he was. Uh, Essentially, just going through the motions and, and just hitting well. He was in the zone. He was uh, going, taking it step by step, game by game. Whereas um, Agassi had a lot, of, a lot more pressure, more pressure on his in, on his shoulders. And um, true. So, uh, how do you how do you think? Do you think this actually was something that actually helped uh, Sempras uh, actually achieve uh, his uh, this one uh, 1990 Open? And was it even a crucial moment in, in, in uh, his career to have won it after he? Because he, he did find that he was a, a good player, but had he lost, for example, that match to Agassi, had Agassi done according to the script, and he Sampras would have left to the final, um, do you think that would have had any any impact in Sampras later on in his uh, his career? Sure. Hard, hard to, that's a great question. It's just so hard to analyze. I mean, let's say theoretically he does lose a tough four setter to Agassi in the ninety Open final. He's had a great tournament, but he hasn't mm -hmm. won it. And then he goes out in 91 and has some similarly good performances, doesn't win one, and finally wins one in 92. We'll never know whether he then would have had to deal with it, it would have, whether the, what followed 92 would have been similar to what happened after he actually did win the 90 Open. I, I, I think, inevitably, I think he was going to win the number of majors he did. It just would have come about slightly differently. I think he was gonna, it was all going to start to gel. But I think the best part for him was was he could excuse 91, which was still a good year. And it did win the, the, the ATP Finals Masters at the end. But uh, he, that, that he could excuse, but he was not willing to let himself off the hook for 92 because he not only had he lost the match to Edberg, he also lost a very bruising semifinal at Wimbledon to Goran Ivanisovic that was played on court one while McEnroe and Agassi were on the center court. Schedule was behind because of the rain. They couldn't take chances, so... It was odd to be playing a semifinal in court one, but that also was disappointing to him too. So he was playing so well week in, week out, winning tournaments on all these different surfaces. And uh, it, it couldn't have been a, a better year in many respects, with, save for not winning a major. But that's, that's, when it all, that's when it all dawned on him fully. Okay, uh, it, it's, time to, it's time to get back on the board again. I, I, can't, I can't tolerate this anymore is how he yeah. felt. Because he, yeah. even he, he said, like, oh, yeah, I was preparing to, like, go maybe into the round, uh, round four. So I think, 
I honestly, I fully agree that like probably uh, he would have gone on to win uh, the 14 because like the, the one thing that can come to my mind is like if he had made a, a final, he would have probably have seen the tennis that he can play still. And losing to Agassi would yes, have made right, no, right. Um, would have been no shame really. So, yeah. Absolutely right. So never know, but I agree. I think that's how he would have looked at it. It still would have been a major stepping stone that's in right. his career. And But it also set, what was important about winning it was it set a certain tone for him against Agassi in the big yeah. matches. He sort of let him know from the beginning, you know, you better watch out because if I'm at my best, I'm better than you are. That was essentially the message he was mm. sending. And had he not won that day, who's to know how that rival- the rivalry could have played out a little differently? Might have. I think obviously he would have had the upper hand ultimately but maybe it would have been a slightly bumpier along the way so i think they were really law there was long-term value in mm. that victory for sure and then we see him really hit his prime in in 90 really uh, you know halfway through the season because he loses again to edberg in australia in the semis there and he was able to shake that one off pretty pretty quickly i thought which was which was uh, surprising considering he had just uh, lost to him at the open yeah, I think the reason was it's true, and he had four love in the first set. It's yeah. amazing that he lost the set from four love, but he did. And then he had five two in the third, and he didn't win either set, and he lost his straight. But that was a semi. That mm. would have bothered him much more if it was another was, final against yeah. Edward. So he was able to. You're right. He was able to put it aside, and you know had a good French, but wasn't really thinking that he was going to win the French. Lost to Bruguera mm. that year, and. And then came to Wimbledon knowing this this was going to be the one. This was, you know, and did have some shoulder issues coming in that could have been a real problem. Unfortunately, it it didn't ever uh, hinder him too deeply. A little bit in the quarter, a little bit in his quarterfinal against Agassi, but by and large, the shoulder cooperated. That was a great tournament because he beat Agassi, who was the defending champion in the quarters in a in a five setter that was, as I say in the book, to me was the most cerebral. One of the most cerebral performances of his career because he did a lot of slicing, dicing, chips, you know, not hitting out that much, steering his forehand and occasionally hitting out on it, but slicing most of his backhands. And I guess he was a bit bewildered by what was being thrown at him by Sampras for two sets. And he, Sampras won them two and two, but I guess he comes back and wins the next two, wins the next two, three and three before Sampras pulled away in the fifth. So That's- I think that was a, that was a critical victory. And then... Well, go ahead. You were going to say something. Go. Yeah, I was going to say that match reminded me a lot and his exact interpretations and the way he saw that match was very similar to the match he saw in 1990 against Lendl in the quarters. Yeah, the, the same. Know, yeah, it was because in each case he was two sets up and maybe got a little complacent. And, and the next thing you know, he, he's got him, he finds himself in a fifth set. So it's true that in each case and it was getting it, it was. He had to face sort of a precarious moment at the start of the final set, knowing it was all on the line. But, uh, yeah, and in each case, it was a quarterfinal. So there were definite parallels that he uh, alluded to very uh, succinctly in his comments. But then then he plays Becker, who, of course, you know, so we've, he's beaten one champion in Agassi. Becker, of course, had won the title in back-to-back in 85 and 86. He was the youngest Wimbledon champion at 17, and then, won it the next year and won it again in 89. So he was a Wimbledon fixture. And they meet in the semis and beat, beat him in straight steps. So he was really peaking now. And then and then in the end, he ended up beating a very tenacious Jim Courier in the final. And Jim, of course, was really in his prime, having won back-to-back French in 91 and 92 and back-to-back Australian in 92 and 93. And this was actually his third major final in a row. He'd won Australia that year. He'd lost a 
a uh, very frustrating five-set final of Sergi Breguer at the French after being up a break in the fifth, and now unexpectedly plays Pete in the Wimbledon final, having upset Edberg in the semifinals. So that would, that that one uh, was was I think Pete believed, and I agree with him. It's one of the most critical matches of his career. He said he never felt more nervous before a match, and he just wanted it so badly. And he'd been waiting for it so long. And, you know, again, the big pressure on him because on the grass, he's the he's the heavy favorite. And the first two sets went to tie breaks and he came through in the tie breaks. He was a bit lucky in the second set tie break when a forehand volley sort of fell in the corner and landed in that he had not had, had not executed very well. And then and then he eventually won it in four sets. And I, I think that's that's what really that 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 was the that was the turning point pivotal moment of his career that enabled him to dominate the game for the next five six years after that no, no doubt about that to finally get that second major and to feel like now he really did know exactly what he was doing this was not zoning anymore this was like plotting it step by step knowing exactly what he was capable of doing but feeling a different kind of pressure and uh, so coming through the courier match and. Against somebody you know who had been his former doubles partner and sort of a mentor of sorts at, when they were starting off together as as juniors heading into the pros was enormously gratifying for Sampras that that summer. Yeah, I think there is a, a little bit of a, an interesting parallel that I, I think I maybe just think about in the sense that Courier was coming to that final and uh, as a baseliner he comments in the book um, that he was never really truly a believer that he could do much in Wimbledon. But he, he, he made it to sure. the final. He, he started believing, especially after Agassi made it the year before. And uh, I feel yeah. like the pressure was off him in, in that regard because he's a baseliner. He kind of like was in a place that he was like, um, well, I, I finally made it here that I never even expected that I could. And Sampras, on the other hand, was in a place where um, he has sort of been before and he was putting all this pressure on himself as... I am the the servant volleyer. I am the one who should dominate on the grass, and he was really nervous, as you as you mentioned, that to not maybe winning. Yeah. But I was thinking, yeah. Five hours. So, and I was Four. I was thinking, um, how crucial? Uh, yeah, it was, it was incredibly crucial uh, that he would win that match. But it, it's interesting that he was on the on the very opposite position that uh, Agassi was in the '95 that he played against Sampras himself, except obviously it was a fast court too. But um, it's it's really um, impressive that he managed to come through the nerves of that and uh, not allowed his opponent to uh, act freely under his uh, pressure pressureless uh, state of mind. I would say. So. Yeah, that's well assessed. That's that's a good assessment. I would say this though: that Courier, I think, in the back of his mind, probably realized this might be a once-in-a-lifetime mm-hmm. opportunity not to win another major, win a Wimbledon. but would he, would he ever be back in a Wimbledon final? He couldn't be too sure mm-hmm. about that. So and he, so he probably felt like he, he, he really wanted I didn't get at that too much with him in my interview, but I think that was probably in the back yeah. of his mind and he, that he, he wanted to take advantage of the opportunity. And you don't know how many Wimbledon finals you're going to be. And while Sampras probably felt like with his game and his temperament, you know, being a servant volleyer, that this was a place that he was likely to succeed again. You know, it was going to be a very a favorable uh, surface and situation for him to keep coming back to Wimbledon trying to win it. But they, they both acquitted themselves really well. And uh, Courier made it highly competitive and brutally hot day, which I think, frankly, favored Courier. 
because Sampras was never fond of the extreme yeah. heat. It really affected him more than a lot of other players. Just like Djokovic today, another parallel again. Uh, Djokovic is not is least happy when you put him in a in a cauldron. You put him on a, a make him play on a on a on an oppressive kind of day, and he has to put the hat on. And you you can tell when he's he's feeling it in a different way. While if it's seventy five. 78 degrees, you know, and he's just so much more comfortable in his movement. Yeah. But that was the case that day at Wimbledon. It was July 4th, 93, and it was it was, uh, it was, was just a stifling afternoon on the center court. But they both acquitted themselves well, and it was definitely one of the landmark victories of, of Sampras' career to win Wimbledon for the first time. And he felt like as a tournament, it was more important even than, than the U.S. Open of 90. Yeah, and obviously, you know, I mean... He then took care of '93 pretty pretty comfortably. He won the U.S. Open over Pioline in the final. Right. He, right. you know, he always felt like Wimbledon was going to be his place. Sorry to interrupt. Of course, Pioline had upset Courier, so that's why. Yeah. That sort of, and then he went on to the finals after that. So he had a good tournament. But you're right. That was a comfortable matchup in the final. And Pioline, he never lost to Pioline. He eventually beat him in the Wimbledon finals four years later. And and uh, yeah, that it, it, it's always nice when you can play a major final against somebody you're really pretty sure you're going to be. You can never be certain, and yeah. you never take it for granted. And, you, and he never, he didn't get too cocky. He didn't assume it was coming his way. But I think it just added a layer of confidence to him that he just knew he was he was better than Peeling, and that Peeling, even on a hot day, was unlikely to be able to stop him. And it was good tennis. All three sets competitive, but Sampras winning comfortably and straight. For sure, yeah, and so I mean that started off uh, the '93s, then started off a, a stretch where he was where predominantly Wimbledon and U.S. Open became his hallmark slams, and we get to see that in '94, which I, I wanted to, to ask you a little bit about '94 because to me that's his most prolific season where he won the most titles. I think he won like ten titles. He did. That's correct. Went three Master Series and you yeah. know two more majors, and you know he really is he really that was one of his probably his most dominant season and and i'm i mean i'm just curious now because today uh with the big three uh goat debate if you want to call it that you know the masters 1000s are considered extremely important as well uh, along with the majors and the world tour finals and you know pete was always someone i think after 95 96 or throughout his he always he yes he liked the other titles but i think he he wanted most of the majors he'd always say that that you know if it's not a great year if i don't win at least a slam so, but but I think I you know how has that that changed over time? Where because he won eleven Masters one thousands in his career, which is you know which is a lot, but it's not as much as like even an Andy Murray who has fourteen. Yeah, and he, so, did, he did point for them. You're right. You're right. Yeah. You size that up well. He didn't really. He didn't. He didn't. Uh, it's not that he didn't value them highly, mm. but he he always looked at it as trying to make sure he peaked for the majors. So sometimes those one thousands were in the middle of the summer. You're right. playing Cincinnati. Do you want to leave it in Cincinnati or do you want to feel like you're building toward New York? In a way, that's what was going on. And so, you know, in both, both 93 and 95, that happened. He wasn't winning any tournaments over the summer post-Wimbledon prior to the Open. But the Open was always in the back of his mind. So you're right. Levin is a modest number for something like him. And again, he didn't. They were not quite as talked about in those days, the 1000s as well. Maybe yeah. that in his mind a bit. He, he, I think he thought more about the year-end Masters, for sure. Mm -hmm. He sure. loved that one which he did five times. But he, the 1000s were nice, nice to have, add to your collection, but they weren't necessarily as high as priority then. And they, 
And I think that was true of a of, of a lot of players that were, you know, trying to peak for the slams. Certainly was true of him. Yeah. Certainly, yeah. And then in that '94 season, we also saw him. So we saw him win uh, the Australian Open right. over Tom Martin, and then we saw him win Wimbledon again over Ivanisevich. And he did, and I do believe that was maybe his best chance, along with '96, to grab a French. Uh, if he was really aiming for it, since I thought he came in with a lot of confidence, uh, having just crushed Becker in the finals of Rome. I felt that and, way. I felt that way. He, I think in 94, if you if you would have known what was ahead, yeah, how, what, it, what an opportunity it was, maybe he would have given it a little extra psychological push. It's hard to know. He lost a frustrating match to Courier where they were one set all and he, he let a game late in the third, get away at four all in the third, 40-15 on his serve. If he goes to 5-4, wins the set, who knows? He didn't win it. He lost in four. think if he'd gotten by Courier and it was very competitive, he might win that tournament. But I agree. That was a great opportunity because he was so dominant that in the first, you mentioned a, a while, a few minutes ago, 10 titles that year, record yeah. for, for a season. He would have won more, Vonch. He could have won more. Oh. But what happened is in the summer, he, he won the Australian to the start, as you said, and that was important. He'd never won the Australian before, and he beats Todd Martin in the finals. It's nice to get that in his collection. He's dominating the first half. By the time he wins Wimbledon, he's won eight titles already. You know, I mean, he was it was a phenomenal first half of the year. Then he got tendonitis in his ankle in a Davis Cup match, kept him out for the summer, pretty much took away his chances to win the Open, where he lost to Jaime Isaga in five sets. And right. then he managed to get a couple more titles in the fall. And he, and he, you know, including the, the, the ATP finals, you know, the Masters at the end, which was nice. But I think he would have had at least 12 titles that year if he hadn't gotten hurt. So some, it was a, it was a great season, but That's it was awesome. unlucky, unlucky mm-hmm. to get hurt when he did. It certainly t- cost him the Open. Agassi stepped in and won that Open. There were two Opens that Agassi won. And I think might have belonged to Sampras had it not been for injuries. Because there was the one, this one in 94, and then again... 99 when his back went out on him just in practice right before the tournament and he had to pull out of the tournament but yes 94 was a really special year and yeah he did start to realizing he was having a problem with an ulcer there were things going on with his health that were making sometimes he was throwing up and not understanding why and there were things going on especially toward in and out over the course of that season that were of concern to him but he he was putting it out of his mind because he was winning so prolifically, as you as you said at the outset. Great, great season for him in '94. Two majors, ten titles. Dominance. There's uh, just one sure. uh, comment on the on the whole Masters thing uh, because that, that was a, a very important aspect of those tournaments. I find like that are it's not the case anymore today, and probably it's one of the reasons why maybe players um, are looking more into winning more of those, which is the fact that they have been all transferred to. Um, best of three instead of best of five. Whereas uh, back in that decade, everybody had to play best of five uh, in in the finals. And it it may have been one of the reasons why you didn't want to leave everything into like a grueling best of five match when you were really preparing to get traction for the the, the opens or the uh, the Grand Slam. So I think this may have played a little bit of a role, I guess, in in how Sampras have not won as many Masters as good. Uh, you're right, it did. Although some of them, like some of the Cincinnati's, which he won in 97 as an example, were not best of five. Mm. They were best of three in, in the finals. So it changed, but you, but a lot of times it's true. You were going to have to put a monumental effort in 
maybe even on the clay there with best of five. It was very tough. But I think more, I really think more important was just the, the, the emphasis he was putting on the mm. slams and how he saw, he saw that as long as he got, a, he, he played enough matches over the course of the summer, for instance, that that was going to be enough that he, he'd be fresh for New York, but fi- figuring that he could peak there. So I think that was a bigger factor than best of three versus best of five at the 1000s. That's just my, right. my feeling. Oh, I mean, you sized it up well, and I think uh, now we're really hitting the the middle midpoint of the of the show, where we're now getting into the most poignant moments uh, of his of his book. Uh, on a personal level, you mentioned the ulcers, and how he really opened up on that uh, when he was reflecting with you, and he was talking about how he always kept his emotions bottled up inside, and how he never really confronted the the issue, and he r- wishes he had have done it sooner, and he was so focused on winning, and you know the the accumulation of titles and continuing that number one streak and winning majors and you know i think we really see a side to sampras that uh that's so poignant in these next few years and 95 it starts off we see the poignant moment with courier in the quarterfinals of the of the australian open right right right. he was going through the stuff with with his coach tim gullickson who had been a major part of his 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 development and so i guess what was that point like for pete um, well you covered a lot of ground there tell me what you want me to focus on now because you got all the, all of those things that you just discussed and alluded to are so important but give me tell me what mm-hmm. you want to want me to to uh, put my emphasis on now in my answer i think uh the situation with courier and the, the oh, situation well, that, with was, that, that was a very point because it ties into Gullickson, as you said, because the previous mm-hmm. fall, Tim Gullickson, his coach, had had a few episodes and nobody quite knew what was going on. He collapsed at his hotel and it turned out that this was leading toward brain tumors that, so he, that at the start of the next year at the 95 Australian when Pete and Jim played in the quarterfinals prior to that. So uh, by then, they knew it was something serious. They were sending him home, and it was a big dinner the night before Sampras and Courier met in the quarters. And they, they went to the dinner together with, with their yeah. coaches and a few other players. Todd Martin was there. And now they play this match, and, and uh, Sampras got down two sets without losing his serve. He lost a couple of tie breaks to Jim. He usually, you know, he was awfully good in the tie breaks through his career, but Jim outplayed him in those. And then Sampras came back, took it into a fifth, and... Somebody yelled out from the crowd, you know, do it for your coach. Now, he told me in the interview for the book, he didn't really hear that. Everybody assumed that that's what made him start crying. But whatever it was, he was feeling a, uh, feeling uh, deeply emotional. And obviously, his mind was drifting to Tim from time to time. And he did start to cry. And then Courier, of course, looked across the net and said, we can do this tomorrow. And some people at the time thought that was sort of, there was a lot of sarcasm, sarcasm in that. But Courier explained that he... It's not really how he meant it at all. He wanted to just find a way to snap him out, Pete, out of it so he could actually be capable of playing again and that the tears wouldn't just drown him. And so it, it did happen that way that Sampras then started serving aces and came back and won that fifth set. And yeah, that was a fun part of the book to write about, to hear from both Sampras and Courier about how they felt afterwards and Courier you know, admired so much what Sampras had done, but Sampras thought maybe they should have talked about it and they never really did. And mm. But it was a very poignant moment, as you say, because people saw him crying on a tennis court. And now we can get a little, little we'll get in the, a little later on in our discussion, which we'll get to the Karecha match at the U.S. Open 96, which is another 
character-defining moment. But this one with Curry allowed people to see a side of Sampras they'd never seen before. This was no longer just a clinician and a, a, a hardened competitor and a guy that would was going to beat you to a pulp if he could. A supreme competitor, but now they saw this a side of him, a very sensitive, emotional side, and more human side. And I think, in a way, that was probably good for him that the public could see that to understand him a little bit better because just because you're stoic and you don't show all these emotions doesn't mean you don't have feelings deep feelings inside which which is what he was showing that night uh, as he thought about his coach and yeah was certainly, great, it was, great. certainly i found it very poignant and you know samples showed that he is human and he's relatable and i think uh, uh, i think he what irked him a little bit uh, he saw that moment a little bit differently, and he thought that uh, he didn't like that the crowd was laughing when career pointed career said that we should play it tomorrow. Um, yeah, exactly. That was interesting. He said that he thought that Jim was just trying to change the mood, but yeah, he it obviously uh, I don't know if offend is the right word. He didn't use offend, but it definitely did bother him because it, in a way it felt as if he was being mocked by a crowd that should have understood that he was going through something uh, very serious. And they were treating it frivolously by almost laughing at him. So he, uh, in, a, in a way, that was, again, probably a positive thing for him because it made him want to say to these people, OK, stop it. You know, I, I, watch out, because now, now you've got me plugged back in again and I'm going to win this match. And you shouldn't, you know, I think he felt that they had they had been uh, pretty unfair with that, with not to be a little more understanding of him. But you're right. It was interesting. Jim, Jim, they saw it in their own way. But as they look back on it now, they're both very respectful of each other and what occurred that night. The difference being that Pete felt like they probably should have talked about it. And Jim felt that there was no need for a conversation, different perspective. And Jim felt that because he just felt like they had the respect for each other and they just moved on. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. The respect was always there. And, and certainly we saw Sampras really, you know, battle through his, his emotions and dealing with the, with uh, seeing his coach Gullickson going through what he was going through and the trauma of that whilst, you know, still being a pro and winning. And, and I think, uh, you know, it, it affected his results for a large part the, for the first half of 95. Oh, definitely. No, and, doubt, no doubt about it. And it was amazing how he was able to not let that carry over for too long. And he was able to then win Wimbledon uh, again and do it in such a fashion over Boris Becker and kind of, take that mantle as the greatest grass court player at that point. Yeah. And the public really warmed to him at Wimbledon as well. Yeah, absolutely. He felt that way. He felt that that, by, that was three in a row. Now, just quickly to go back to Australia, he did end up getting to the final after, after yeah. he won that match over Courier. He beat Chang from a set down. He'd already beaten Magnus Larsen from two sets down. And here he was up, up a set against Agassi in the final and serving for a two sets to one lead before losing. So he'd come very close there despite all of these, mm. uh, all, all of the clear distractions of, of what was going on with Tim Gullickson going back to the States. But then, right, very, very in and out in the, through the winter and spring and right, right up until Wimbledon. Wimbledon became critical for him because he really wanted to get back on the board at a major, lost in the first round of the French that year. And that was a big win to come from a set down over Becker in the finals. Becker had just upset Agassi, who we had not beaten for almost seven years since the Davis Cup match in back in July of 89, all the way to 
you know, I said six years is really what it was, almost six years. So, I mean, that's a long time in, in, in the life of a rivalry to, to, uh, for somebody not to beat a top rival. But Becker had done it, so he was on a high. And when he won the first set against Sampras, I think many people thought, wow, Boris, this might be it. This could be Boris restoring himself on the center court and showing that he's the king of grass again. But Pete, those last three sets played really beautifully and won them very decisively in a 2-4-2. and two. It was pretty clear cut. And uh, I think, you know, it was a match he ended up enjoying. And, and uh, he, he thoroughly outclassed Becker those last three sets. And then it led to uh, what was a really critical career moment once more against Agassi at the U.S. Open at the end of the summer. Yeah, and that was a really crucial point in the in the rivalry, if I'm not mistaken, because they were tied at 8-all. Right, and right. That was, you know, in some ways deciding the year at number one uh, oh, for the year. Anyways, yes. Yes, yeah. and, and the, again, the interesting thing there is this time Agassi had toppled Becker Agassi had also gone from losing the Becker match at Wimbledon to winning 26 consecutive matches, four titles in a row, right, yeah. right up to the Sampras final at the Open. So if he were to have won this, uh, regardless of what the computer said at the end of the year, I think the experts would have said that he was number one and he would have felt like it and Sampras would have felt the same way. So it was probably there's probably been never been more riding on a big final for him. You could maybe say the Courier 93 Wimbledon because of what it meant to him personally. But for two players in the prime of their lives, playing the finals in New York of the Open, two Americans with so much riding on the outcome. Uh, it, 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 was, it was a defining moment. And Sampras won that in four sets and, and played beautifully in the wind to topple Agassi. And I, 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 as I said in the book, I don't think it was the best tennis he's ever played, but it was one of those most important wins, and it was still an, an excellent performance, to be sure. He surpassed it in a lot of other instances, but it was another example of rising to the occasion because, as we talked about earlier, the 90 final, Agassi, the clear favorite at that stage. Many people favored him in the 95 Open given the summer that he just had. He wasn't as overwhelming a favorite, but still, given what he had done all summer on the hard courts, uh, there were more people picking him to win than were picking Sampras to win. But once again, it was Sampras who... who got the victory. And of course, it just carried him through the rest of the year and it and demoralized Agassi, who really, for the next, despite winning an Olympic gold medal in the summer of 96, was really not the same yeah. player again until 99. He kind of rebuilt in 98 after falling to 141 in the world in the fall of 97. But that loss was shattering to him. For Sampras, it was just a sense of marching on, moving on purpose, purposefully from that win. And, uh, and, and, and continuing to collect major titles. So it, it, it had major ramifications, for, implications for both players. I think it's interesting you brought that up because I think if Agassi would go back now, he might play maybe, a less, maybe one less tournament or something heading into yeah. the U.S. Open because he was on a huge win, match-winning streak. But I think I, I read in your book that uh, Brad Gilbert, who was coaching him at the time, was was quite, uh, could sense early on in the match that he was a little bit, when Pete hit that signature cross-court backhand into the open court, I think, you know, it really killed Andre's uh, self-belief in a sense that he felt he was exhausted or, or tired such an, at such an early stage in the match. Well, also psychologically. It was psychologically, such, yeah. Such a punishing blow to have, to have this 22-stroke rally on set point in the first set. And for Pete to find the open court, he pulled him off wide to his forehand, opened up the court for the cross-court backhand winner. And 
And it was it was so deflating to Agassi and uplifting to Sampras simultaneously. So, yes, that that was the golden moment of the match and probably the critical moment of the match because it carried Sampras through the second set and he eventually won at 7-5 in the fourth. But uh, very memorable clash and 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 what it the effect on Agassi's mind, mindset was almost immeasurable, but it was very negative. Yeah. Yeah, I think going back, um, as someone who watches a lot of uh, highlights from the 90s, because I, I'm a huge fan of Sampras' game, because I find it so perfectly packaged. Some of the serve and volley packages that he does, and some of the skill set that he has from the back of the court, and his underrated speed, and his, uh, you know, his just his panther-like quickness that he's yeah. able to cover, uh, especially the forehand, signature forehand cross court, and, you know, the leaping smash, and all these elements to his game. But I think his backhand actually... Uh, is a shot that can be uh, that at critical stages has come up to be quite uh, such a potent weapon that he can use and he can he can guide it so well down the line or he can hit the high ball really well or he he has some unique variety that I think people don't give him enough credit for. No, I think you're absolutely right about that. There's no doubt that against certain players on certain days that could get the ball up high to his back end with heavy topspin. He didn't enjoy hitting that high back, and we talked about that in the book, too. However, all of the diversity that you just referred to, the ability to slice and come in behind, the ability to slice in the middle of a rally to get back in position, the, 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 the propensity he had to unleash, you know, devastating topspin back in his cross court. He had, there was a lot of variety on that side, and so it was very hard to find the weaker spot way up high. You had to be a really good sort of Karecha clay court type player to exploit that. Otherwise, he could really damage you off his back end. And he also could use it so beautifully to set up his forehand because he would yeah. loop it. He'd loop it a lot down the middle and dare them to come up with something. And then on the next shot, you'd see him running around the back end and cracking that forehand. Yeah, he, he was a very gifted uh, all around player, the most complete player by far of his era much more complete than Agassi or Courier or even the servant volleyers like Becker and Edward because he, he was so much better mm. off the ground. Yeah. Would you rate his backhand volley as maybe the best you've uh, you've ever seen in the game? Maybe up there with Edberg, like close or I put it pretty close. I really I think it's it's I think it's very underrated. And uh yes, I, I, I would I would put it right up there near the top. You could say maybe Edberg's is just slightly better. Slightly more natural, but it, I, I wouldn't make, I wouldn't put a dime's worth of difference between the two, and I think it wasn't talked about enough. We talked about his leaping overhead. We yeah. talked about you know, his athleticism, mm. his running forehand, his serve, but the backhand volley was magnificent, and he developed a really magnificent forehand volley as well because it wasn't just the con the classic low forehand volley that he could make with regularity, but he if it was up a bit higher, he could actually flick it. Not a big swing volley, but just a little flick with a, sh with a shorter swing and knock it off cross-court for winners. So he, he had a lot of ability up at the net as well, as you just referenced. Hey friends, so this was part one of our talk with Steve Flink about his new book, Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited. You can find a link for that book in the description right now. And part two is already up, so be sure to check that out as well. Bye-bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 